1: When it comes to the gospel, it is easy to go through scripture and find those places where you have before and after shots of what it was to be in sin and then to be in grace. Today, suffering and incomparable glory. We were bad, and now we're good. We were in darkness, now we're in light. We were dead, now we're alive. Jesus has done all of this through the cross. Along with that, he has given us incomparable glory. You see, that's what awaits us. So in light of this incomparable glory, what is a little bit of suffering along the way? To quote one great divine, when we get home to heaven, we will have found the price to have been cheap enough. In Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace.
2: Because we are God's children, He brings suffering into our lives. And suffering should not surprise us. We might want Him to lead us upon an easier path, but faith leaves to Him the wise government of our lives. Faith says, God wants me to walk in this way. Faith hears God's word in Hebrews 12. He scourges every son whom he receives. He chastens, so we see this in our lives. We see a lot of worldliness and weakness, and we realize, I need God's scourging. If I'm going to be God's son, I've got to learn one of the first rules of his house. We all have certain house rules, do we not? Such things as don't spit on the floor, don't leave your clothes strewn all over, put them away, put them in the dirty clothes hamper. Don't put your shoes on the furniture. That was a big one in my family. And one of God's house rules is every son who is going to enter into glory, every daughter who will be assured of my love and enjoy sonship is going to be chastened and tested. We're going to be made like Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 9, one of the main purposes of redemption is so that we can be conformed into his likeness. So our sonship is going to look like his ...with cross-bearing and learning obedience. But there's something bigger, way bigger than simply our own sonship... ...or even than the whole church. When we sinned, we did more than plunge ourselves into misery. We brought a horrible curse upon the entire universe. And that universe groans, waiting for our redemption our resurrection because our glory will be its renewal we'll pick up today in verse 18 a remarkable transition notice at the end of verse 17 paul talked about being glorified with jesus he said we are heirs of god joint heirs with christ and then he goes immediately to the sufferings of this present time. Why? Well, one reason is certainly to temper our expectations as to what our life on earth will be like. At the same time, we know that tremendous glory is coming heirs with God, joint heirs with Christ, no more tears, no more dying, no more condemnation, serving God fully. Sinlessly, perfectly, forever. But now in the present time there will be suffering. Because that is the path to glory. What was Jesus' path? No crown without the cross. The apostle reminds us here that it is because we are children of God. It is because God has brought us into his family that we endure affliction, that we suffer so that we will be conformed unto him. Do you know that in each of the Gospels, this same verse appears? If any man will come after me, let him go do what? Be giddy? Smile all the time? Everything just goes perfectly? Is that what you and I can expect? No, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, he did say we could expect joy in God's presence. But he also said again, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. For if you love your life in this world, if you find your life, boy, I sure am happy here. I feel at home here. This is all I could ever want. But Jesus said, you'll lose your life. But if you lose your life for me, my sake, you will find it. Why did Jesus keep saying this? Why doesn't he say something different? Because there was in those days, as there are in our day, men, women, young people, who to hear them talk, You would think that God always wants us cheery. God always wants us trouble free. They're always talking about formulas and principles on how to avoid trouble. How to fix your life. How to fix this and how to fix that. Usually, of course, it's all on our terms. So that we can get what we want. This isn't Christian discipleship. But it is psychological manipulation. It's really theological arm wrestling with God. And we are always going to lose. Because God defines the path of sonship. And it is one of the tragedies. Perhaps one of the greatest tragedies within the church today. That there are so many who crave these dangerous lies. But for those who are taught of God... Suffering comes as no surprise. It is a reality. It is a responsibility that we must manfully shoulder as we walk with the Lord to his eternal kingdom and to our inheritance in Jesus Christ. But notice something about this suffering. Verse 18, it is only for the present. Now, it can be of severity. So much severity that we feel like we are being suffocated, but it is temporary. Look at how Paul described it to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians 4.17. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now, he didn't say this to make light of our difficulties, but to give us confidence and resolve to bear them patiently and to be encouraged to look past the immediate pain to the future glory. Because as he goes on to say, they are working. Those afflictions are working. It's not simply that God works in afflictions, but the afflictions are his working to produce a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And Paul just heaps up superlatives here. It is so glorious what God does through our afflictions. Now please understand the patience. The waiting that Paul is going to describe in these verses is not stoicism. It is not this sense of that we often hear, well, I can endure anything as long as I know it will be over soon. Or as long as I know it won't last forever. Or hey, you know, I can deal with this for right now. No, Christian patience is confidence that God is working glory through the afflictions that he brings into our lives. This is what we have to confess. This is the path, the suffering and affliction that God has ordered for me this is the path that he is walking with me on where he leads i have to follow i can't do otherwise because i cannot resist his will but not only that this is the best path for me and therefore i can endure it with patience and with joy because this comes from god's hand But we will never be able to confess this unless we are persuaded that God's hand is directly involved in our suffering for Christ, suffering for righteousness, bodily affliction, chastening for our sins, that his hand is directly involved in. It's not that he's just generally directing them. No, in wisdom... He has brought your specific afflictions, hardships, burdens, and trials. In each of our lives, He has brought them specifically to each one of us. Because He knows they are good for us. He knows that we need to be refined and humbled. And He knows that we cannot seriously, we cannot seriously aspire to heaven unless we are brought to see our weakness and our worldliness through suffering, and then to call upon his name. Now, not just for short-term lessons, but as we see in these verses, long-term lessons for suffering purposes. And two main short-term lessons that we should keep in mind every day because we suffer in the present and we don't know when or how. We don't know to what degree of intensity. Uh, Some people talk a lot about their sufferings. Other people don't really talk about them at all. But there are two things we always need to remember that are behind suffering in the present. First is to lead us to depend upon God's strength and to depend and to submit to his will. Not how can I get out of this, How can I make this go away? But I need to depend on God for strength, and I need to submit to His will, whatever it might be. Second, these two things in turn lead us to call upon Him with fervency and constancy to lead us to the throne of grace. You've probably seen it in your own life. That is why sometimes we hear people confess that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because in the worst, God leads us to the best. And that is, it leads us to him. That is to call upon his name. But we don't learn that unless we submit to his will first and call upon his name. Have you, have you ever noticed in the Psalms, most really, if not all of them, that are of the more prayerful, personal variety, begin with, Lord, I'm in trouble. I have these enemies. Lord, these, there are sins in my life. And you can almost hear David, but he's not saying, Oh God, have mercy upon me. I mean, David, if we could hear his tone of voice. Have mercy upon me, oh God. I'm surrounded with all these enemies. They're going to eat me alive. But then at the end of the psalm, there is a calmness because we've got God. Because David remembered God's presence and God's present promises were with him. But let's think about the larger purpose, and that is really. The verses here in Romans 8 are about the larger purposes of suffering. Let's go back for a moment to 2 Corinthians 4, 17, which I just read. What are our sufferings doing? They are working an eternal weight of glory. Through suffering, God makes us fruitful, fruit that endures and will stand on judgment day. He is showing his love for us. He is preparing us to be crowned with glory and honor as we faithfully bear the cross. Notice here in verse 18 of Romans 8, the glory, though, is going to be revealed in us. I want you, for just a minute, to stop and think about this very carefully. Paul doesn't say we suffer in the present time so that one day we can see heavenly glory no we will see things that we don't even know exist now but we will see things of such magnitude splendor beauty weightiness that we will forget everything that happened here or at least it will be a faithful reminder of how gracious God was in that short part of our earthly existence but he doesn't say We are going to be spectators of glory. He says we are going to be partakers of glory. He says the glory, and the preposition here is very clear, it is going to be revealed in us. I don't exactly know all that this means. I'm really not sure anyone does. Many commentators confess this, but we do know one thing. We are going to share in our Savior's glory. Jesus prayed his last prayer, John 17, saying, Father, I will that those whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. So we will be spectators. But early in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, I am going to sit down and serve you. And, of course, here in Romans 8, 17, we just learned we are joint heirs with Jesus. And now in verse 18, glory is going to be revealed in us. We're going to be partakers of it. We're going to share in it the changes, the resurrection power, the holiness, the joy, the peace. It's not going to be an out-there glory only it's going to be an in here glory when we begin to realize throughout all eternity what God has formed us to be in us. Imagine for a moment a man born blind and trying to explain to him the sun. You can tell him there's a big orange thing in the sky and it's hot. And on a Sunday day, I can, sunny day, I can feel the heat. It's really big. It's 93 miles away, and it's, it's as a fireball. It's what keeps us warm. What's a fireball? Well, it's a round-like ball, and it's on fire. What's a ball? Well, you know, it's one of those circular things. A blind man is going to have a difficult time with this. He has probably gotten increase tactile function so he can get a sense of shape and texture and density, perhaps, and weight. But he hasn't seen this object. This is something of our blindness when it comes to talking about the glory that will be revealed in us. Why? Because in the present time, what is your environment? It is sin. It's sorrow. It's weakness. Oh, there are joys. But the environment in which we have lived has been filled with sin. We see it crying with crying babies. They learn right away that there's pain in this life. I'm not going to get my will satisfied my way, am I? This has been our environment all our days, but there is coming a day. When we will be whom God created us to be and with greater fullness because we know now of mercy. We will be whole and holy. We will be happy and contented. Our desire, our satisfying desire will be to worship and serve God forever with upright hearts. The wonders of a renewed universe. Will make the pain of this life be but a distant memory. And of course, John says in 1 John 3:2, we will see Jesus, and seeing him, we will be transformed into his likeness. There will be nothing in us to burden or trouble our consciences, not even a ripple. There will be nothing but peace among all God's people. These things are all revealed to us in the Bible so that we will bear our present sufferings patiently. But that will only be the more we meditate upon the glory that is to come and search Scripture and remember what great things God has laid up for those who fear Him. So even though we don't yet see the glory, remember we do see... Jesus, Hebrews 2, nine, We see what he is, where he is by faith. We know he is reigning and he is interceding for us. And one day we are going to possess these things and be a part of these things forever. So Paul says, listen, in comparison to that glory that is coming with our present suffering, you can't even compare the two. It's like comparing a piece of paper to a gold brick. They aren't even in the same category. But one of the reasons we struggle so much is because we keep our eyes focused on present suffering. Look at what I'm going through. I can't believe these people are doing this to me. I can't believe the bad guys are doing all these things they are. I can't believe my children are doing this. I can't believe my spouse is doing this to our family. These sufferings are real, but the glory is more real. That glory that is to be revealed. So Paul, by implication here, would say, think on these things. Meditate on them. That is why it says in Colossians 3, to set your affections upon things above. Think on what Jesus is doing. Think on where he is Think on what the kingdom of God is doing throughout the world and what God has promised he will yet do. And then our present sufferings will be seen in their proper perspective. Then to tie that in briefly before we begin looking at the next verse with what we have seen, where do you get that kind of perspective? Rise early and seek the Lord. Have your nose in his book. Meditate on his promises. Because I know in my own life. And I'm sure this is true of the godliest that have ever lived. If you do not have time of renewal. And actively work to set your affections on things above. You may be a believer. But this life is going to suffocate you. Its sufferings are going to so weigh down your spirit. That yeah I believe in God. Yes, I trust in Jesus, but it seems so distant and so unreal. Because all I feel right now are splinters, fires and floods and sin and guilt and trouble. But God says, look at what I have promised to you. Look at the glory that is coming. Now, as we wait for this glory, verse 19, the Lord tells us we're not alone in waiting for it. He wants us to realize there's a lot more going on than just with believers. Being a Christian is a very personal commitment, but it is not individualistic. We are not on our own private spiritual adventure trying to find out what works best for us. No, life is God's story. And one of the blessings of having our eyes opened by the Holy Spirit is that we realize there is a cosmic work that he is doing through Jesus Christ. So we're not alone in our present struggles. Notice there, verse 19. We're not alone in our waiting. The entire created order is also waiting. And the word here means anxious waiting, anticipatory waiting. We are tied to this created order. We are a part of it. And it cannot have the curse we brought on it removed until we are perfected in glory.